Hello, and Happy New Year. I'm Katherine Jansen, editor of Speculum, a journal of medieval studies. I'm delighted to welcome you to Speculum Spotlight, a collaboration with the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast. Each episode brings you behind the scenes of an article published in our current issue, in this case, January 2024. In this episode, we spotlight the CERN giant in its early medieval context. Drawing on archaeology, art history, and textual evidence, the article examines how the well-known CERN Abbas giant has been understood and reimagined during its long lifetime. Here, in conversation with Will Beattie, PhD candidate in the Medieval Institute at the University of Notre Dame, are co-authors Thomas Morecambe, postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Philosophy, Classics, History of Art and Ideas at the University of Oslo, and Helen Gitos, associate professor in early medieval history at the University of Oxford and fellow of Balliol College. At Oslo, Tom is a member of the Narrative Hierarchies Research Project. His recent publications include an essay on the construction of masculinity in the homilies of Wolfstan and a narratological study of pre-modern character. Helen has a forthcoming article in the English Historical Review, the short title of which is Sutton Who and Syria, and is currently writing a book on the use of English in the liturgy before the Reformation. And to our subject, she is leading a collaborative research project on the medieval history of Cern Abbas, including excavations by Hugh Wilmot, which have already uncovered parts of the cloister and church of the monastery. They are also hoping to uncover the abbey where Aelfric wrote his famous sermons. We'll undoubtedly hear more about this in the discussion that follows. So now let me turn the conversation over to Will, Helen, and Tom. Hi, my name is Will Beattie, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Notre Dame. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Helen Gittos and Dr. Tom Morecambe to discuss their fantastic article in the latest issue of Speculum, The CERN Giant in its Early Medieval Context. Helen and Tom, it's great to have you with us today. Lovely Thank to be you. here. Thank you. To get us started today, I'd like to read your abstract. The Cern Abbas giant is a well-known figure cut into the chalk of a hillside in Dorset. Recent archaeological investigation has concluded that it had been cut in the early Middle Ages. We argue that he was originally carved as an image of the classical hero Hercules, and that this apparently surprising date makes good historical sense. The landscape context of the giant indicates that he is best explained as marking a muster station for the West Saxon army. Although it is widely believed that the earliest written evidence for the giant dates back to the 17th century, we make the case that he was referred to, albeit implicitly, in the liturgy for St. Eadwald, whose relics were at CERN. By the mid-11th century, the monks of CERN were reinterpreting the giant as an image of their saint, and this is one of the many ways in which the saint has been reimagined, which helps explain why he has been looked after for so long. So I have to say I really enjoyed this article. Um, I study early medieval England, and my research touches on figures like Alfred Ventium and touches on Sir Nabbas as well. And I visited some of the chalk hill figures like the Uffington White Horse, which obviously predates the Sir Giant by a few centuries. But I haven't yet had a chance to see the giant itself. And it was fascinating to see you weave together archaeology, history, historiography, literary studies and liturgy in this article. And it touches on major elements of pre-conquest England. 
things like mustering troops, the veneration of saints, the continuation of non-Christian or pre-Christian religion in England, the politics of the early church. So there's a, a whole host of things we can talk about today, but I'd like to start with something fairly simple for our listeners to get us in. Could you just describe the CERN giant and what led you to write this article about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's easiest just to start with, as you say, a basic description. The Sun Giant's a um, chalk hill figure, and he's a massive image of a strikingly naked man, about 60 meters tall, carved into the chalk bedrock on a hillside just above the village of Stern Abbas in Dorset. He's brandishing a stick or club in his right hand, and his left arm is outstretched beside him. And then his kind of his feet are turned both towards the right, as if he was in movement in some way. And his head is in a very distinctive teardrop shape, which uh, Helen can probably tell you a lot more about. It's uh, early medieval artistic resonances. Um, and he's got a basic, but quite evocative face with eyes, eyebrows, and a basic nose or mouth, though the nose is sometimes quite hard to see. And of course, he's very strikingly naked with nipples, exposed ribs, and of course, perhaps in the popular imagination, most famously, his large erect penis. So that's probably what he's best known for in a popular context. You'll see him on tea towels and mugs, probably for that reason. And I grew up visiting St. Abbas uh, as a child. I, I grew up nearby and I had... Um, I had the misfortune um, of a childhood that was full of medieval churches and medieval monuments. And I tried very, very hard to rebel against them. But one of the places I really loved, and I didn't stay in the car and moan, was St. Abbas. And part of its attraction is simply that it is an incredibly beautiful, quiet village in the Dorset Hills. But also it's, um, it's a very watery place. So it has these streams that run all the way down the streets through the village. You, as you're walking past the village shop, you can hear this very loud sound of volumes of water underneath your feet. And so it was a perfect place as a child to play poo sticks. So CERN is, is a fabulous place, but it is absolutely dominated by this huge figure, which Tom has described so well on the hillside above the village. And so what was it about the giant that made you compelled to write this article now? Well, um, during lockdown in the UK, when COVID was going on, the National Trust announced that they had been doing some archaeological work on the CERN giant, absolutely on the eve of COVID um, arriving in the UK. And they were announced that the scientific dates that they had got from that archaeology had given a very surprising result because people have been arguing about the date of the CERN giant for a very, very, very long time. And most people had thought that it was either really very old, Iron Age, pre-Roman, um, or actually it was something more recent and perhaps early modern in its, in its origins. And the dates that the archaeologists came back with were... Anglo-Saxon. They were right in the um, in the early Middle Ages. And I suppose I saw this as a bit of a sort of personal challenge, really. If that really is the case, if the CERN giant really was cut in the early Middle Ages, 
how do we explain that? What's he doing there? What was happening in CERN Abbas? Who, who made this? Why did they want to do this? What was its inspiration? And so I was thinking a lot about this. And as one does nowadays, um, I was talking about it with academic colleagues on social media. And I suppose one should probably think about it in terms of COVID. It was very nice to be able to use Twitter to talk to one's academic colleagues at a time when we couldn't go to conferences and we couldn't really see each other very much. And so a group of us were talking about, you know, what did we make of this? And amongst these conversations, I noticed a somewhat tentative tweet from a man that I didn't then yet know called Tom Morecambe. And that tweet, Tom, would you like to explain? Yeah. I suppose I'll fill in the other side of the converging paths um, from my perspective. So I'd recently been working on Old English poetry, particularly the poem Wolf and Eidvacher, and looking particularly at names with Eid prefixes in. So I'd actually been looking around the cult uh, of St. Eidwald in the local area, which we might come back to in a little bit already. So I had some familiarity with CERN and its local cult quite seared into my mind just as we were starting. But then I also saw this on Twitter and my background isn't quite as rooted in Dorset as Helen's is. So it was all new to me. But I think being so grounded in the ecclesiastical culture of the Abbey at the time and the giant itself being so close, if you see their relationship to each other on the hillside and the Abbey just at the bottom of the valley, being essentially right next to each other. This seemed like a challenge to me from a different perspective of how I squared what I knew about medieval and culture, early medieval culture of CERN with the fact that the one dating that no one had really seriously entertained yet, that of an Anglo-Saxon giant, looked now to be true. And I also was kind of getting involved much more tentatively, I think, as Helen says, about kind of possibilities of reinterpretation. But I think between the two of us, we came together and were able to sort of share different reading, share different insights into it, uh, into the potential possibility that no, this isn't a wild conjecture. And in fact, the giant fits this context enormously well, actually, and would be grounded in this landscape and this community much more closely than we originally thought. I think it's worth saying that what Tom suggested in public was that um, perhaps we should consider that the CERN giant was an image of the local saint of CERN, Saint Eadwald. Well, I was rather startled by this because not only did I know CERN well, I'd done most of my research at that stage on the 10th and 11th century church. I, I knew Alfred Schwell. I'd, I'd written about Alfred. And here was Tom telling me the name of a saint that I'd never heard of. And it didn't, of course, take me very long to find out the article that he was referring to and, and some of the work on that, um, because Tom was drawing attention to an article that had been published a while ago. Perhaps Tom would like to... Absolutely. Um, so I was pointing out Tom Lysen's article on the life of St. Aidwold by uh, Gosselin of St. Bertin, who was operating in Dorset at the time, probably based out of Sherborne, almost certainly visited CERN. And in this um, life of St. Aidwold, one of the major miracles associated with the saintly hermit is that when he first comes upon the area where the abbey is now founded, um, which he has been granted a divine vision of, a um, silver fountain that he's been guided towards, he plants his staff or baculum into the ground on a sloping hillside 
and it miraculously sprouts into a living tree as proof that he's arrived at the destination of his final resting site, which is, we interpret as some kind of relationship to his bones being then interred at CERN and his cult centred there. But my argument at this point was there's a striking spatial relationship between the giant with his knobbly stick, which might be Mm. a branching staff up on the hillside, looking down over both the spring and abbey in the valley below. And I was suggesting that Gosselin may have modelled the hagiography on the relationship between the giant and the abbey to kind of incorporate it into the uh, Christian worship of the area. So Tom Morecambe had written an article which was essentially... Sorry, um, Tom Licence. Tom Licence, thank you. <laughs> which was I don't want to claim credit for this. <laughs> which was essentially an edition of a text which he was arguing had been written by Gosselin mm. and provides the lessons to be read on the feast day of St. Eadwald at Cern Abbas and that had been written, he was arguing, by Gosselin in the 1070s or 1080s. And what's so striking about one of those lessons is that it describes how the saint who had fled from Vikings in East Anglia, and he had um, uh, was looking for a place to, to be a hermit. And he plants his staff, as Tom says, and a tree grows in that place. And he sees this as the sign. And then he runs headlong down this really steep hill at the bottom of which he finds the spring and it is that coincidence of this image of a running man holding a staff in his hand and running down a very very steep hill at which there is a spring at the bottom and those things together that nexus of things is as Tom says so strikingly compatible with the location of the the monastery or or the hints we didn't yet then know where the monastery was the hints of where of where it had been that it seemed to me that there was really something in Tom's suggestion and that one oughtn't not to be too tentative about it and that really this was something that was worth exploring there's so much to dig into there and it is fascinating i imagine in those early days when you were just talking over social media uh, the idea that this enormous carved image of this big naked man wielding a stick would somehow be a representation of an early medieval English saint must have seemed pretty difficult to square with what we tend to think of when we think of early English religious figures, right? Let's let's go back a minute and have a quick look at the way in which that dating was done, just to give our audience a sense of how this new date was arrived at. And from there, perhaps we can talk a little bit about what that figure may originally have represented before it became St. Eadwald. So the objective really was to try to date the giant, to try to get some evidence to square all of these arguments about how old he was. And so a number of trenches, four trenches were cut across different parts of the chalk figure. And they then gave cross sections, which showed how the figure had been originally cut, scooped out in shallow trenches into the chalk, and then regularly either cleaned or had chalk packed into the the trenches. 
in order to be able to keep this white outline against the green grass. And one of the things that is so terribly exciting, I suppose, about the giant is that in order for him still to be there for us to see now, every generation since when he was made has to have been involved in maintaining him probably several times. And so what those cross-sections revealed was um, an indication of the different ways in which that maintenance had happened. And the dating evidence that they used was a method called optically stimulated luminescence, OSL, which is a method which dates the last time that the particles within the chalk have been exposed to sunlight. So basically, you're recovering samples from the very lowest parts of these trenches and then taking them to the lab and then opening up the grains within them and um, in a scientific way. And the evidence that that provides for when that chalk had last been exposed to sunlight. And the results that came out from that were two of the samples agreed that um, this had last happened within the sort of late Anglo-Saxon period, a broad date. It isn't a precise date from about 700 to 1100. And that was then confirmed by a date late, higher up, nearer to the surface, which gave um, a medieval date that was later than those. So that was sort of supporting the evidence from the dating. Now, this is a technique that has been used for a very long time by lots of people. It's had lots of checks. Um, it, it's not a, it's not something brand new, even though it isn't as familiar to medievalists as radiocarbon dating, for example. Now, um, what it tells you is that the... Um, giant was first silting up at that time. So it isn't exactly telling you when it was first carved. What it's giving you evidence for is the first bits of silt that go fall into these open trenches. So this happens either through rain washing down off the hill, which it does not infrequently in Dorset, and that brings with it soil and little bits of chalk and it also um, is, is done through things like animal action, through, through rabbits and stuff, pulling it uh, onto the um, layers of the foundations. It's worth saying that it was also, um, this dating was also confirmed by the presence of snails of a type that were found within the fill and which were only introduced into England from the Roman period onwards. And so that seems to support the idea that this was early medieval in origin. So thanks to the OSL and the work of senior archaeologist Martin Papworth at the National Trust, as well as Mike Allen and Philip Tom, you're able to identify a 400-year window in which this giant was beginning to silt up, which couldn't have happened too long after it was originally cut. And you start to lean towards an earlier date. In fact, in the article, you connect this to a spike in interest in the Hercules legend around the 9th century. Could you tell us a bit about the legend and why this pre-Christian figure was so interesting to a medieval English audience? Yeah, so the shape of the club is the thing that tells you that it's Hercules. It's like the keys of St. Peter. It's it's that kind of symbol. And so in the early days, I spent a long time just looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of images of Hercules. And it didn't take me long into starting that process to become completely convinced that that was what it was. You know, he's absolutely a stylized image of which there are thousands known from the ancient world. I think it's important to just note how 
common the um, story of Hercules as a classical figure was in the Middle Ages, especially associated with his club and mantle, probably his two most famous iconographic elements. So we don't likely have the mantle in probably in any version of the giant, though somewhat contested. But yeah, of course, Hercules was a um, Greco-Roman demigod, Hercules or Heracles, associated with most famously his 12 labors, but also notions of sacral kingship, individual strength and valor, and um, the slaying of a variety of monsters. There's just this enormous range of approaches to him in the medieval period, certainly in early modern England. He's a divisive figure. We have, in fact, in the works of Wolfstan, for instance, which I know are a little bit later, he is referred to as Seent, the giant. So there's a lot of different views. Alfrich refers to him as the hateful Hercules, almost based at CERN. But there were also a lot more positive views of him, which might account for why a figure of Hercules was carved into the hillside at all at this point. Hercules was of interest all the way through the early Middle Ages in Western Europe, but particularly so in the ninth century. And the apotheosis of this is the throne of Charles the Bald that still survives in old St. Peter's in Rome, which was made in the um, middle of the ninth century and was then had added to it on the front of it ivory plaques which show the labours of Hercules which were probably added to it in the 870s for the coronation of the Carolingian king Charles the Bald and this fits with all sorts of evidence for people's interest in Hercules as an image of a flawed hero but of of an image of of manly might And it's clear from tracing Anglo-Saxon references to Hercules that, as Tom says, he was this controversial figure, but which people continued to come back to. So for many, he was he was this, you know, an object of fascination. But there are also writers in which Alfrich is one of them who, who considered him to be, you know, really, really problematic. It's not okay to do the terrible crimes that Hercules did and uh, to to hold him up as a potential Christ-like figure in the way that some people do seem to have done. It strikes me as an interesting point of contact, again, between the medieval and the modern, that these figures have such a hold over people for such a long time, that Hercules, as now, was seen as this very complex, multifaceted figure that could be used in all sorts of different ways and was still an object of fascination, even when figures like Alfred and Wolfstan are critiquing him and saying that he's not an appropriate figure of veneration, let's say. But we have then this image of Hercules carved into the hillside next to a site where a monastery is created. What on earth is he doing in CERN? Well... The man who founded Cern Abbey was Ealdorman Adelmere, who was one of the leading nobles at the time in the late 10th century West Saxon court. But what's really weird about the way that he set up the foundation of the abbey is that he gathers land, partly that he's given himself, partly that he's got his mates to donate to the refoundation of this monastery. And he says, you can have all of this land, except the bit that's mine, except the bit that is CERN itself. And you can't have CERN itself until I die. 
Now that is completely unusual to be able to found a monastery on land, but say that you can't actually have this land until after the donor has de- has died. And that seems pretty odd. And it suggests that Avalmir was particularly interested in CERN and indeed perhaps it was an estate that he was using and intended to use and didn't want to give up control of until after he'd died. When you look at the topographical and archaeological evidence for the context in which the CERN giant is, it becomes clear that the CERN, the giant itself is just one part of a much wider group of sites within the landscape. So it's really interesting that the hill itself, Giant Hill as it's now called, didn't used to be called that at all. It used to be called after the earthwork, which is on the top of the hill, just above the giant, the Trendle. That used to be the name of it. Well, the Trendle is um, a rectangular banked structure, the purpose of which we don't know. But it is a clue to seeing that there's a lot more going on on this hill than we might think. There are other things. There is charter evidence, which shows us that there is a roadway that leads up onto Giant Hill. Indeed, it still does, which in the late Anglo-Saxon period was a heropath, an army road. And it leads from the old Roman town of Dorchester, not far away, up north towards um, Sherborne. On the other side of the valley, that the giant is sort of facing a valley and then hills on the other side of it. And on there is a piece of Anglo-Saxon sculpture, which is recorded in the Corpus of Anglo-Saxon stone sculpture. It might be a reused Roman monument, but it's it's certainly there and set up in the Anglo-Saxon period. And there is also a, a very odd stone called the Belling Stone, which is recorded in, I think, a late 13th century charter as being right on that on that ridge and is still there. And so piecing together sort of the topographical context, I came to realize that the CERN giant is in a location which has recently been identified as a special type of meeting site known as a hanging promontory site. And Stuart Brooks and others have identified places like this as being places where they weren't for regular hundred meetings for the, the, the normal hundred or shire court business. They were for special gatherings that took place occasionally rather than regularly. And they tend to be on a spur coming out of a ridge high yeah. up and um, and marked by these kinds of things. And so this sort of conjunction of the heropath, the fact that this was an estate that belonged to the alderman of the Western provinces, and we know that it had been owned by his father, Adelweird, who'd been a leading thane in the court of, of Ethelred. And they themselves told a story that they were descendants of a ninth century king, King Adelwolf. All of these things together make it seem to me that the CERN giant is best understood in this context as being a hanging promontory meeting site. And one of the things that those meeting sites were used for were muster stations as places where you gathered armies. And when you are in the process of gathering an army together, you need lots of things, but particularly you need resources, water, food a place where they can meet. And so given this kind of real interest in Hercules in the 9th and and 10th centuries, given all of these pieces of evidence, such as the the Heropath, 
the um, similarities with those kinds of meeting sites, it seems to me that it's best understood as being one of those special meetings and probably one used as a, as a muster station for West Saxon armies in the 9th or 10th centuries. And just to echo what Helen says there, we think the symbolism of Hercules fits particularly well with that function. This idea of a kind of hyper-masculine, violent figure, this model of a certain type of masculinity being carved into the hillside as a rallying point, but also an image to aspire to for gathering warriors, we think makes good sense given how he, his image was being used and re reutilized in the ninth century. So we think it's, um, it's a useful motif for this sort of muster site function at this time. And just to underline that, if I'm remembering this right, there is a reference to King Harold at the Battle of Hastings fighting under a banner which had on it an image of a fighting man. And indeed, in poetry of the time, Harold and Postig themselves were referred to as twin Hercules. So there's all kinds of interesting allusions to Hercules and martial strength of Anglo-Saxon war leaders. So we think it makes a good fit. And CERN is very, very close to the Dorset coast. So one of the earliest recorded references to a Viking army in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is not actually at Lindisfarne. It is at Portland, just south of CERN Abbas, where a Viking army is said to have met the local reeve. And the local reeve says, what are you doing? You're not from around here, are you? And the Viking army makes it clear what their purpose is to him. So you know, CERN was very, very close to a front line in a Viking context. That example of Hercules um, and your discussion of it illustrates just how wide ranging this article is in the kinds of sources it's drawing upon. You've provided loads of amazing images of all the different sculptures of Hercules against which you compare the giant, you have the archaeology itself, you have I assume the the various legal documents right surrounding the founder Edelmar. Where do you begin when you're doing something like this? How do you begin? How do you keep track of all of these different kinds of materials? I think on a personal level, it was fascinating how having this focal point, this physical object, this physical monument of the giant to send things around, you do see how the variety of records almost as tributaries can be fed back into it. So in many ways, I felt it gave us a lot of focus, though you do see really un the giant pop up in all manner of unusual places in church records, in the Society of Antiquities. There's records that I never thought as a early medievalist I would be looking into where the giant is so prominent because of its long term antiquarian interest. But ultimately, with the focus on CERN and the giant, I think it gave me a real nexus of focus to know what was relevant and what could be more easily discarded as a spurious or later edition further down the line. Yeah, and I think for me, I pursued it because at every stage, bits of the jigsaw kept on fitting. And that was what was so exciting about doing the, the work, but also made me think it was worth pursuing because everywhere you looked, <laughs> there seemed to be something that was slotting into place. We've already spoken about Edward. We spoke about him at the beginning of this interview. And we've spoken a little bit about why he mattered to the area, why he mattered to the monks. One thing which we haven't perhaps touched on that much is some of the politics around Edward and things like relics in early medieval England and the ways in which they may or may not connect to the giants. I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about the relics. 
Well, absolutely, yeah. CERN is relatively late in its founding compared to a lot of the uh, monasteries of early medieval England, but it explodes in wealth. It quickly becomes one of the wealthiest in England, and we think this is in no small part due to it having the cult of St. Edward centred there, and with that, of course, his relics. But we also get some sense, again, from the work of Tom Lysons, and this is also in a addendum to the life of St. Edward, his translatio, that there was some kind of competition between Sherborne and CERN as major monastic communities and centres for the relics of St. Edward. There's a striking passage in which the body of St. Edward, recently dead at this point, refuses to be moved towards Sherborne, but leaps and jumps impetuously towards CERN. And this is sort of taken as an idea that this is his true final resting place. I think we can extrapolate from this something of the motivation for why the giant was reinterpreted as St. Aidwald, because we see this idea of the relics belonging at CERN, the relics being a token of Aidwald as a permanent fixture of CERN, and reinterpreting the giant as another mark of this saintly hermit being inscribed into this landscape, I think cements and vindicates CERN's claim to an enormously profitable set of relics, which would cement their status as the kind of centre of the cult of St. Aidwald in the area. Yeah, I mean, there's no question at all that the monks would not have made an image of St. Eadwald that looked like that, were they creating it from scratch. So we don't think that was happening at all. What we think is that being founded in that place, they had to explain this mm. image on the hillside, which, and I guess this is a really intriguing thing, um, for whatever reason, they couldn't just let grass grow over it. They had to deal with it. And so they did it by incorporating it into their own story and uh, reimagining it, as Tom puts it, as an image of their local saint and trying in that way to get Hercules out of his uh, of, out of his identity by, uh, I don't know, yeah, by cleansing the hillside, by reimagining him as St. Eadwald. And converting all his features into hagiographic motifs, the blooming staff and the kind of naked to follow the naked Christ maxim of St. Jerome are sort of here quite ingeniously in a very scholarly, erudite manner, applied to a pre-existing figure to sort of justify and vindicate its presence. So you have this very learned approach to a um, local monument that seeks, maybe in a slightly tortuous manner, to incorporate it into local worship. But I think that fits well. And I think, again, that there's a degree of evidence in the fact that it seems only temporary. The as association with Eadwald doesn't seem to have stuck after the conquest. This seems to be a both spatially and temporarily limited project by a specific learned community in Dorset to make sense of a rather inconvenient figure on their doorstep, literally, in this case. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, people obviously weren't very convinced. Yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem to have stuck. And just as, I suppose, sometimes been hard for us to convince people that anybody might have imagined that this was a saint, it does appear as if people in the early Middle Ages weren't convinced either. So that identification doesn't seem to have lasted, as far as we can tell. It does remind us just how much these ecclesiastical figures, or the monastic figures, sorry, who perhaps we can sometimes think of as secluded and cloistered and separated from the world, are interacting in that world and have to respond to it and the rest of the population when it comes to preaching, delivering a certain message. 
we can't see what it is they're responding to. I think that's one of the things I find so tantalizing is that what we can't see is what the people around them, why it was that Hercules had to stay, why it was people kept climbing that hill and cleaning that giant and what they thought they were doing. And I don't suppose necessarily that they thought of him as Hercules. I imagine that all of the people who've been involved in cleaning that that hill figure have thought very different things Mm. about him and about what they were doing and why they were doing it. It's just that through the textual record, we get a glimpse into a few people's ideas about what they thought they were doing, or at least what they might try to persuade themselves they were doing in caring for this extraordinary figure. And that unknowable fascination with the giant has continued for centuries to this day, as you said right at the top, uh, Helen, that the only reason that we can still see the giant so clearly today is that generations have been cleaning it and repairing it, restoring it over the centuries. I was wondering, as we get towards the end of this conversation, if you had any thoughts on why the CERN giant has always cultivated so much interest and why it remains so fascinating to people today. I think for me, one of the things that I began to understand through looking at the iconography of Hercules was, I think it's because although his lines, his outline, his shape appears so simple, actually the form that they take is informed by thousands of years of history. And I think there's something about that multi-layered deeply embedded, extremely rich iconography that underpins the the shape of that monument and its place in that landscape that is communicated by it, that people understand. And when they are going there in the middle of the night to drink cans of lager on top of the hillside and watch the stars, when they're going there as they do to see if they can try to make babies on that hillside. <laughs> you know, the number of reasons and that the, the people are fascinated by it is extraordinary. But I think that the pull of the giant is to do with this incredibly layered, textured, ancient set of resonances that all sort of not quite sit on top of each other, but interact with one another and which carries on you you don't have to spend very long in that village to hear all sorts of stories about the connections between the people in the village and visitors with it and the giant i think it's this richly evocative outline this outline that can support so many motifs so much symbolism has accrued so much history over the centuries that so many different theories can be affixed to it but with that of course comes the mystery and in some senses, it's so interesting to be maybe in a period of the giant's life where some of that mystery is getting untangled a little bit, because for so long, it was this real free for all, everything from Neolithic to a parodic view of Cromwell. And I think this idea that it can support so many interpretations isn't one we necessarily want to diffuse altogether while we're talking about a potential origin for the giant in terms of dating and its original early medieval context. It has to be recut, as we've said every generation, at least every decade. And we're talking about communities in the local area constantly reinterpreting, constantly finding new reasons to maintain this hill figure. And I think that capability to support new stories in every generation is part of its kind of enduring appeal, even to the present day. And that's both attractive and also, I don't know, a slightly humbling. It's interesting 
to have done so much of this within a, a sort of public context. So right from the very beginning, it wasn't only other academics that we were talking about it with, but it was also members of the public who were interested in it. And their sense of what they were persuaded by and what they were unconvinced by was really interesting to think about as we were putting it all together. But I also, yeah, I have no illusion that we will not be able to slay the idea that there's something mysterious about the CERN giant. You know, were we to be right, that will do nothing, I think, to um to to slay the idea that this is this is something mysterious. And I don't know what I feel about that, really. There's something a bit annoying about the simplicity of the idea that there's a mystery when actually it seems to me that the real stories that we have uncovered, the stories that we think we know now about the giant are so much more interesting in their precision and their complexity and their and their rootedness with individual people. And I think, you know, one of the things that has been so extraordinary is to that we can connect so many individuals that we know quite a lot about, including Alfrich, who wrote whatever it is, 20% of the surviving corpus of written old English, you know, a man that anybody who works on early medieval England has to wrestle with. And to think that we are in doing this, not only understanding more about that giant, but also getting a much richer, more textured understanding of the landscape as he saw it around him and the conversations that he was having with other people as they negotiated that context. And we can see some of that from his letters and we can see some of that from his connections with his patrons, Adelmir and Adelweird, the owners of those estates amongst them. But we can also see some of them through conversations that are not otherwise recorded, but which we can now understand more clearly. The wonderful thing about doing this kind of research is that while one mystery may seem to be solved, it only opens up more. And as you said, we don't know what the monks of Cern Abbas were responding to in terms of the popular attitudes. The way that the giant has been understood has probably shifted throughout time. So it just raises more questions to try and answer. You mentioned there Alfrich, who is this influential figure, an enormous figure in old English literature, who of course was at Cern Abbas for many years. And Helen, you're also working on a collaborative research project at the moment on the medieval history of Cern Abbas with researchers like Hugh Wilmot. And you're trying to uncover parts of the monastery's church and the cloister in different areas. I was curious, what do you hope you're going to learn from this project? And do you see it connecting to the giant? Yeah, so doing this work with Tom, I began to realise how much evidence survives in CERN and how rich it is. And so I persuaded Hugh Wilmot that he really ought to come and have a look. And very rapidly within the last two years, he has done a huge amount already to discover where the medieval monastery was. And he's done that partly through survey work, but also now through a first season of excavations, which took place this summer. And it's been wonderful to assemble a team, um, including Tom, but lots of other people too, to try to understand, we hope, not only the early medieval history of CERN, why was the monastery founded in that place? What kind of place was it? Was there an early church here? What was that estate like? Um, those sorts of questions, but then to trace it all the way through to its post-Reformation history. So how were 
the people um, responding when this major church was destroyed after the Reformation. I mean, literally dismantled and taken apart. And so we want to explore the great sweep of that history from its early foundations of this estate and, you know, to understand why monasteries were put in in a place like this and to take it all the way through up to its post-Reformation history. And to think about that both in terms of the architecture and the archaeology of what survives there today, but also in terms of other things like the, the way in which the landscape was being used and perceived and understood and how the ritual landscape changed through all of that period. So I hope that CERN will be a window onto helping us understand all sorts of questions of which the giant is a part, but is actually by no means the only or even the most interesting part of that landscape. Absolutely. I think it's all part of this demystifying process Helen was talking about earlier, that it's not just the enigmatic figure in isolation, it's part of this hugely complex, much larger and much longer history. And we've got things like the Book of CERN, this beautiful insular 9th century old English prayer book. And probably not written in CERN, though, there's huge amounts of addendums that were that have been barely studied that were written at the monastery. This is, in a different textual sense, a massive part of old English history. And yet it sat for centuries just down the hillside from the giant. These things have a complex interlocking history that's very rarely touched upon when we think about them as artifacts in isolation. I think what's so interesting about what people like Helen and Hugh are trying to achieve here is taking all these fascinating jigsaw puzzles pieces in their own right and trying to slot them together into something a lot more local, but a lot more holistic in terms of what was happening in CERN and Dorset more generally at this point. Well, it sounds like an amazing project. And just as we wrap up, I wanted to ask if there's anything else, any other major projects on the horizon for you that you wanted to to mention? What's next for you both? Well, oh. while I'm hoping to do more work on CERN at some point soon, I currently work on the uh, narrative hierarchies, Byzantine and medieval storytelling and uh, project in the University of Oslo, where I focus on kind of the mechanics of narratology in relationship to medieval and Byzantine literature with my PI, Matthew Kinlock. So that's my current project, but still very much actively interested in early medieval English culture and old English literature and poetry. So hopefully more of that soon as well. As well as getting distracted by CERN, I've also been distracted by thinking about 6th century history and 7th century history. So I have a piece coming out arguing that there were Anglo-Saxons fighting for the Byzantine army on the Eastern Front in modern day Syria in the late 6th century. But I've also been thinking about the conversion to Christianity and women's role in that particularly, none of which is what I'm supposed to be doing. What I'm really trying to do is to finish a book on the use of English and French in the liturgy that runs all the way from sort of Bede up to the Reformation, so from 700 to 1550. And that's what I must try and get back to if I can stop being distracted by really interesting things. Well, it sounds like you're keeping busy with some exciting projects on the horizon. Thank you so much, Dr. Gittos and Dr. Morecambe, for speaking with us today and for sharing this research. More information will be posted in the show notes, and I encourage everyone to read this fascinating article. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Many thanks to Will, Tom, and Helen for that most interesting conversation. Let me also thank the MMA series producers, William Beattie, Jonathan Correa, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. 
I'd also like to acknowledge the members of the Speculum Editorial Board, along with the Speculum staff, Taylor McCall, Carol Anderson, and Jane Mashu, and the Medieval Academy of America for its continued sponsorship. Music for the MMA is by Anna O'Connell. I'm Katherine Jansen, editor of Speculum, a journal of medieval studies. Speculum is the journal of the Medieval Academy of America and is published by the University of Chicago Press. One of the perks of joining the Medieval Academy of America is receiving both the print and digital editions of the journal. Online, you can find us at journals.uchicago.edu slash TOC slash SPC slash current. Till next time.